0: what got you there with Shondalini? What got you there with got you, got you?
1: It's almost like this tragedy that, that works is so simple that people won't take it seriously because they think it has to be more complex than it should be. And so when I read that from Sherlock Holmes, that the world is filled with obvious things that people don't pay attention to, they're, they're too obvious for people to pay attention to. It's like, that's exactly what investing is. You have the smartest minds in the world, PhDs from MIT, And the simple stuff that really matters and moves the needles gets ignored. And so I've always found it just interesting in investing.
0: Morgan Housel is a partner at The Collaborative Fund and a former columnist at The Motley Fool and The Wall Street Journal. He is a two-time winner of the Best in Business Award from the Society of American Business Editors and Writers. Morgan is out with his first book, The Psychology of Money, Timeless Lessons on Wealth, Greed, and Happiness, which Sean thought was absolutely exceptional. In it, Housel shares 19 stories exploring the strange ways people think about money and teaches you how to make better sense of one of life's most important topics. Hey, it's Sean. And before we get started on this week's episode, I wanted to share what I've been working on behind the scenes for the past few months, and that's my new technology job hiring startup called Culture Finders. Culture Finders is here to save the millions of people from working in jobs they hate and dread going to every day. If you've ever been in a job you can't stand or hired someone who looked great on their resume, but turned out not to be great and destructive to your company's culture, then listen up because Culture Finders is for you. Culture Finders is a technology-backed talent matching service that connects job seekers with employers based on optimal culture matching so both parties can seamlessly merge together. When you create a profile, you'll receive your Culture Connection score and get matched with your dream company based on maximal compatibility and shared interest. To create your profile, all you have to do is play our fun brain games Uncover your unique personality profile and answer a few questions. That's it. You're just a few clicks away from connecting to the opportunity that's been waiting for you. If you're a job seeker looking for that dream job or run a company who wants to save the headache of bad hires, head to culturefinders.com to get set up with your Culture Connection score today. That's culturefinders.com. For all the coffee lovers out there, listen up. I'm crazy about the coffee I fuel my body with, and that's why I'm always grabbing a bottle of Super Coffee from to Life. Super Coffee has something to satisfy every coffee drinker's needs. Check out their brand new pods for the quick pick-me-up that are filled with vitamins and antioxidants. Before every podcast, I fuel up on their Super Espresso, and my wife and I are borderline obsessed with their plant-based coconut mocha Super Coffee Cold Brew, which has 10 grams of protein, no added sugar, and is keto-friendly. I love the Coffee and the Three Brothers so much that started this company. That's why I became an early investor. There's a reason they just got ranked number 18 on Inc. 5000's fastest growing companies. So if you want to check out what they've got going on, head to drinksupercoffee.com and see what everyone's talking about. Morgan, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing really well. I mean, this is a hectic time for you, The Psychology of Money, your first book coming out. What's it like, just the, the preparation, the final few weeks before it releases?
1: What's interesting about a book is, you know, I've, I've, I've written online full-time for 13 years. I've published, uh, I think something like 4 million words online. But if you take those words and you put them in between two pieces of cardboard, people suddenly take them much more seriously. It's like, <laughs> it's a much different thing. And of course, like a book is a different a different thing. A book is not just a collection of blog posts. You can go deeper into a topic, you can, you know, uh, people's attention span on a blog is very, very short. On a book, they'll give you a little bit more leeway to tell a longer story and whatnot. Uh, what's also interesting about the book is that some people might notice this, but a lot of my blogs, even a week after I publish them, I'll go back and change things. Just because I'll, I'll wake up in the middle of the night and say, Oh, I could have, I could have added this other example. I could have changed a sentence. Or sometimes I'll just read a paragraph and say, Oh, that's that's not written very well. Let me change that. But a book is done. It goes <laughs> to the printer, you ain't never changing it, forever hold your peace. You know, it's so there's there's some like fear in that. The other thing is if you write a bad blog post post, and everyone does, then uh, you know, it's fine. There's, there's the next week. There's the next blog post. You can just put it behind you and go. But if you read a bad book, that's out there. Yeah. <laughs> it's that's it's printed. It's your relatives are going to read it. So there's like the book. The stakes for a book are just higher.
0: So where's the confidence level right now in the book?
1: I feel. I feel pretty. Look, I feel like I gave it. I I did my best. And there's always going to say, just like I was saying before, I opened a copy of it two days ago, just to a random page. And I started reading a paragraph and I thought, oh, that paragraph was so poorly written. I could have done so. So I just closed it and said, I'm not going to look at it anymore. I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not going to like, it's done. What's out there is what's out there. I I feel like I gave it a really good effort. I used a lot of, you know, the the biggest things that I've learned in the last 13 years of doing this to put it in there. So I, I feel good about it. Um, but but like the truth too is that books are like seed stage startups. Ninety nine percent of them don't work. They just don't they just don't catch traction. And one percent of them like completely blow the lights out. So if you just think about those odds going into it, the odds are severely stacked against you. So you can hope for the best, but you have to assume that you know the baseline assumption that every author should have is that. It's going to flop.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's always fun when, when there's a writer, and I'm, I'm intrigued by their articles for a number of years, and they're coming out with a book. I mean, my expectations were through the roof for this, and so you absolutely delivered. So I'm really appreciative of that, and I know the amount of feedback you've gotten so far has just been tremendous. So I, I'm just happy for your success thus far, and we're going to dive into the book, but I would love even just knowing earlier on, right? Like, we know what Morgan Household is like today. What's a sentence that your family or friends would have used to describe you growing up, maybe teenage years?
1: Oh, um, well, you know, my, my teenage years were interesting because I, I've I've written, I've written a little bit about this, but I, I haven't gone into detail too much about it online, but I, I effectively didn't go to high school. I effectively, I really have no high school education. I grew up ski racing in Lake Tahoe and I did an independent study program throughout my high school years um, that got me a high school diploma. I'll say <laughs> diploma in air quotes because I, re- I did nothing for it. I did nothing. F- I did It was like I took a couple of tests that showed that I could like add single digit numbers. And they said, here's a diploma. Go away. So I basically had an eighth grade education, had no high school education whatsoever, and then went to college. And I was able to do that not because I was so smart that I I could go to college. It was I had to start when I was 19 or 20. I had to start back at eighth grade level, like eighth grade math kind of thing. So I, my teenage years, there was no indication that I was going to be anything other than like a garbage truck driver in my career because I had, I had no, I had no, uh, skills, no intelligence, uh, you know, what, whatsoever. I mean, I was always, if you go back to like when I was in eighth grade, I, 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 did, I did well in school. I was always able to learn, but I just stopped learning from age 14 to 19. I had pretty much no education whatsoever. And I wasn't reading back then either. It wasn't like I was, I had no intellectual curiosity, During that period, I was just skiing and hanging out with my friends and getting into trouble with them. So, um, you know, forget what other people may have said, but when I look back at my teenage years, like I never in a million years would I think I would be a professional writer in my 30s. It was never, ever part of the plan.
0: that's the funniest thing when I first picked up one of your articles I was like wow this is just this is masterful the way it connects and uh I was just like I I have to assume Morgan's just had such an extensive background in in regards to training so I I need to know then like what developed (laughs) that that early interest in, in investing and in writing
1: I think for investing um I don't know I mean it started when I was like in my late teens and my grandparents uh, gave me $1,000 maybe for Christmas or my birthday, something like that. But when I was 17, that was like, ah, 1000 bucks. this is a lot of money. And I put it, I went to the Bank of America and I put it in a CD. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know why. I don't think anyone told me to do that, but I, that's what I did. And I, I knew what interest was. Like I, I knew this was going to earn interest and I knew what that meant. But I remember the next week logging into my my account and the account balance went from $1,000 to $1,000 and 13 cents. And I remember just sitting there staring at it, like in stunned silence. Like, I just got paid to do nothing. It just blew my mind. Even though I knew what interest was, I remember, I vividly remember, I can, like, I, I, I totally remember sitting there looking at the screen being like, oh my God. This is incredible. So I think that's that silly little story is what got me interested in finance. The fact that you can get paid to do nothing seemed like a good career because I was capable of nothing at the time. I had no education, so I got interested in finance. But what I wanted to do was investment banking, um, because like every you know slightly ambitious young male in the mid two thousands, investment bankers had all the power, all the authority, all the prestige. They had the homes in the Hamptons and the private jets, and it looked so glorious and glamorous. So that's what I wanted to do. Um, and that's when I, when I eventually did go back to college, it was, I want to be an investment banker. Um, but then I quickly realized I got an investment banking internship in my junior year of college. And day one, it was like, get me the hell out of here. I want nothing to do with this. This is the most miserable thing I've ever seen in my life. Just the culture of it, the hazing culture that sit at your desk and work till 3 a.m. and and you know ask permission to take a drink of water kind of thing. It was just like I, I wanted nothing to do with it. So I needed to do something else in investing, but I had no idea what I was going to do. And then a friend of mine at the time was a writer at The Motley Fool, which I had, I had maybe heard of, but I had no I, didn't, I didn't, wasn't reading, I wasn't reading much of anything back then. And I definitely was not writing. I was an economics major in, in college, which meant you didn't, as long as you could write your name, you know, there were really no writing assignments involved in that. I had no writing background whatsoever. So I applied thinking, well, they're not going to hire me, but they did. And then I thought, okay, well, I'll do this for like six months until I find something else to do. But I quickly, well, no, I, I wouldn't say quickly, but after a while, I fell in love with writing as well. At first it was just, I love investing. And if you force me to write about it for a job, I'll, I'll figure that out. But if, before long, I fell in love with writing. And now I, I now I love writing as much as I love investing. I'd say they're like co-equals in my career. Um, it, it took a while, but it was totally unexpected, um, just the process of writing. It's like thinking about a topic and then thinking, how can I – how can I take this, this little topic, this nugget of an idea, and tell a story about it and keep people's attention and try to tie it into other fields in a way that might be interesting uh, is something that I, I just love doing.
0: Yeah. Oh And you're masterful at that. That's what I love, right? You take these ideas from completely different realms and tie them in together so wonderfully. I'm wondering, though, at the Motley Fool, why did they hire you?
1: Yeah, It's a, it's a good question. I spent 10 years asking <laughs> that question every day myself. Um, no, look. So I started in 2007. And I was a junior in college at the time, and they, um, you know, they hire dozens of writers um, to to write articles on their site. So I was a contract writer; I got paid per article, uh, and I was one of you know a, a bunch of people who did that. When I when I joined, I was the the banking writer. I covered banking, so my job was to cover you know Wells Fargo earnings, that kind of thing, and in 2008, which is kind of my first full year doing this, half the companies that I covered went out of business because it was 2008, I was writing about banks. They all like, they either went bankrupt or they merged with each other. So because of like the financial crisis and because I was my focus on banking, I really started writing about economics. So that for, for many years, if you go back to like 20, 2009 to 2014, all I was writing about was economics like the components of GDP growth and like what the unemployment rate's doing, that was all that I wrote about. That was everything. And then it kind of shifted more towards behavior mm-hmm. towards like, just asking a question of like, why did the financial crisis happen? That, that was probably like the, the root question and realizing that it had nothing to do with anything that you would find in an economics textbook. It was all about just how people thought about risk and fear and greed And these topics have nothing to do with math or economics. It's about psychology and sociology and biology even. So I started getting interested in that. Um, And then, so that's kind of what I've written about since. It's kind of like the intersection of investing history, economic history, and behavioral finance. Like where those two things meet up is what I'm most interested in.
0: Do you think just the overall growth chart of your ability as a writer exponentially went up once you started writing about these things that were really deeply interesting to you?
1: I don't, I don't it's, it's hard. There's sometimes, well, I mean, I, I think this is true for, for any writer, even the best writer in the world. If you're writing 50 articles a year, there's only going to be three to maybe 10 of them that you feel really good about. That's always going to be the case. So if I think about like exponential growth of, of writing, I don't, I don't know if that exists for anyone Hmm. because the best writers in the world will most of the time write things that are not very good. That's Hmm. always going to be true. There's no false modesty in that. That's just like the way that it works. Um, so there are times when I look back at things that I wrote a month ago and I'm like, ah, that was, that was garbage. And then there's times I look back at things that I wrote 10 years ago. I'm like, that was really good. So it's hard to, it's hard for me to track like the growth. It's not like in, you know, in sports or something where you, you can measure like with statistics, how you've done over time writing, since writing is an art and because it's an art, what is good to one person is going to be garbage to another. So it's hard to measure how you've done over time.
0: Yeah. If you were looking back at all your articles, is there one you're most proud of that, that you feel internally is just your best work thus far?
1: I think there's two that stick out. And they're both kind of personal stories. One was an article I wrote in 2017 called Overcoming Your Demons, which was uh, an article about I've grew, I grew up and I still have, although I'm able to control it now, a pretty severe stutter when I speak. And when I was, when I was young, it was debilitating. I could barely talk um, it wasn't until I was in my mid to late twenties that I felt like um, I had some control over it. It wasn't until I was in my early thirties—I'm thirty-six now—and wasn't until like the last five years that I felt like I've gotten control over my stutter. And it's not that it's gone; it's just you learn how to how to deal with it. So I wrote about that whole journey in an article that was really meaningful to me because for my whole life, going back to when I was a child, I dealt with stuttering by just pretending it didn't exist and sticking my head in the sand. And it was the first time writing that article that I just like laid the whole story out there. And people, I I think other people like personal stories, particularly personal stories about challenges because everyone's got challenges and most people try to hide them and cover them up. So if you could be public about your challenges and cover about your, your faults um, I think people like that. They like the open honesty because everyone is struggling, but everyone puts on this facade of, oh, I'm doing great and everything's, yeah. everything's perfect. So th- that was meaningful to me. And then the other was fairly recently. It was uh, I don't know, two or three months ago in mm-hmm. a call called The Three Sides of Risk, which is a story about, I, I mentioned growing up ski racing as I was a teenager and uh, two of my best friends were killed in an avalanche when we were skiing and I was, I was with them the whole, the whole day when, when they died. So I wrote about that whole experience and what it taught me about risk. And I tied it back to in how to think about risk and investing, just like thinking about tail risk, thinking about the, the crazy one in a million events that really move the needle in life. So those two articles stick out because they were both deeply personal. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to do some research, you know, historical research about a topic and whatnot. It was, that was just, I'm going to sit down and spill my guts from the heart about two really challenging things that I dealt with. Uh, So those were personally meaningful to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, both of those absolutely unbelievable. I remember reading Overcoming Your Demons and both these articles, actually, it it immediately had me take action. I picked up the phone call, called some people, and then it just made me think so deeply about certain things I've struggled with, dealt with. So yeah, I mean, you you absolutely connected there. We'll make sure those are linked up in the show notes. But I'm even just so impressed, right? Like you're only 13 years into this and you're like a masterful writer. So like what were you doing early in your career just to speed up that learning curve even?
1: Well, uh, I mean, first, thanks. Um, and if you go back to my days at the Mali Fool, particularly the early years, two thousand seven to twenty fifteen or so, I was writing like three articles per day, every day, without skipping a single day. And I was paid per article, so if I skipped a day, like I wasn't getting paid. Like I was really, I, it incentives. was just the volume. It was it was the volume game. Um, and so when you're writing that much. In in a lot of ways, I like I look back at a lot of those articles and they're and they're junk because I I only had thirty minutes to think about them from the time I came up with the idea to the time it was published. I was just like smashing it out as quickly as I could, but that much that much practice I think is is really important. If you do if you write three articles a day for five years, anyone will gain some sort of of you'll you'll improve if you're doing anything that much. So I think just the amount of just that volume game was was really helpful. But then on the flip side of that, like the polar opposite of that is this was at, when I was still at the Motley Fool, I convinced them to let me write way, way less. Like my pitch was, I was talking to someone the other day about this. My pitch was like, hey, what if I write 75% less, but you still pay me the same? <laughs> and, 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 and it worked. It, 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 like, it totally worked out because that let me slow down and think about things, write longer articles, more thoughtful articles where I could do a lot of research about it that I just didn't have time. To do in the past when I was on the volume game, so that was really important as well in terms of like, hey, I I have, I have no pressure to, you know, just get numbers on the board in terms of the number of articles that I wrote. So how if, if I'm going to write one article this week, how can I think, you know, slow down, think about it, do a bunch more research on it? So those two things, like the polar opposite of like being forced to just write like like an animal for years. <laughs> And then having the opportunity to slow down and think
0: about it. The two ends of that were really important. Is that how you pitch, pitch that at the time at the Motley Fool? Just saying, if, yes. if I'm able to slow, okay. I was going to say, and like I was, the- I was, I was texting with my old boss, who I'm
1: still really good friends with. And we were talking about that phone call just like two days ago, we were talking about it. Um, and he bought onto the idea right away. My pitch was like, if I slow down, I'll write better things. So I'm not going to be writing as much, but what I do write will be better. And he, 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 and he, he bought that. So that, that was a really important shift in my, in my whole career. Like if that hadn't happened, I would still be on the volume game. So what that, do you think was, your comparative
0: really advantages? I mean, I, I read all your work and I've got a few ideas, but I, I'd love to hear you just self-assess that.
1: I don't think any writer has a comparative advantage because it's an, it's an art, and then so like, look, it seems like you are complimentary of what I write, but there, I know there are a lot of people who would be genuine in their criticisms. And that's, of course, that's going to be the case because it's an art that's, this is not math where it's like, you know, I, I discovered E equals MC squared and everyone agrees on the numbers. This is, it's all an art. And so what some people like other people don't. And of course, if you are active on Twitter, people will tell you in very clear terms when they don't like what you've written. <laughs> so I, like, the, the feedback is always, is always there. But if there is any comparative advantage that I have, is that is that this is all I do. It's 100% of what I do. I, even though I work at Clarity Fund, I'm not active on the investing side at all. All I do is write and speak. That's it. And then so I think most bloggers do it as a hobby in addition to their day job. But since I can wake up every single day thinking about what I'm going to write next, it just, there's more bandwidth to focus on it.
0: Hmm. That, that is interesting. So yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want to be overly complimented and uh, definitely have come across things where it's like, huh, okay. But yeah, overall, I mean, I'm just thoroughly impressed. So that's why I wanted to say that. So you start well, the book off uh, with, a, with a quote from Sherlock Holmes, and I'm just an, an avid reader of Sherlock Holmes, huge fan of him. And it's, the world is full of obvious things, which nobody by any chance ever observes. And I'm curious why you included this quote
1: because to me that was that's what investing is. Investing is really simple. It's not difficult at all. If you spend less money than you make, save the difference, invest in a low in a diversified low cost portfolio and be patient. That's 90% of finance. That's 90%. That's that's what you need to know. Even for professionals, amateurs, it doesn't matter. That's 90% of finance. But I think that's too simple. It's too basic for people to pay attention to. They want to, the other, or even if they know that's 90%, they're going to focus all of their attention on the other 10%, the, the more complex strategies and whatnot. So I think investing is just this, like what works is so simple. It's almost like this tragedy that, that works is so simple that people won't take it seriously because they think it has to be more complex than it should be. And so when I read that from Sherlock Holmes, that the world is filled with obvious things that people don't pay attention, they're, they're too obvious for people to pay attention to. It's like, that's exactly what investing yeah. is you have the smartest minds in the world phd's from mit and the simple stuff that really matters and moves the needles gets ignored and so i've always found it just interesting in investing
0: yeah you bring up an, an unbelievable story that really ties this in and i'm pretty sure her last name is goner is it grace goner is that how you pronounce it yes oh i yeah. saw so, i mean that that's just a wonderful story can you just give like a little bit of context to that and and then we can dive into it a little bit more
1: grace Groner was um uh a a, a woman who was born on a farm outside of Chicago in 1910. And she had a really difficult life. She was orphaned as a child. She never married. She never had kids. She lived alone in a one room shack her entire life. She worked as a secretary for all of her entire career. She was like, by all accounts, people who know her, she was a lovely lady, but she just had this very understated, simple, basic, kind of sad, lonely life. And when she died, she died in 2010. She was hundred years old. And when she died, everyone who knew her was shocked to learn that she left $7 million to charity. And people said, like, how did this widowed, uh, ch- you know, unmarried secretary who just lived in a shack by herself, where did she get $7 million? And when they dug through her papers, they realized that all she did was she took what little savings she had from her career as a secretary. She invested it in stocks and she left it alone for 70 years. And that, that was it. There was no other – there's nothing more complicated to, than, it, than that. That was, that was it. And you know, what, the skill that she had was patience. That was all she had. She didn't work at Goldman Sachs. She didn't go to Harvard Business School. She wasn't following the CAPE ratio, like none of that. She, all she had was patience. And that was all that mattered. You don't need anything else. You don't need any of the fancy stuff if you have that level of patience to where you can be frugal and, and invest consistently for 70 years. If you have that, nothing else is going to move the needle. Yes,
0: yeah, so, so that's the, I,
1: I opened the book with that story because it's like, I also point out that there's no other industry where that's the case, where someone with no education, no background, can vastly can do so well, while people who have the best educations, the best backgrounds, can go bankrupt. Like as Grace Groner was becoming, you know, almost a decamillionaire, long-term capital management went bankrupt during a bull market. Like there's no other industry where those things are even possible. And I think the reason that it's possible is because what matters in investing, what actually moves the needle. Is not how smart you are. It's it's how you behave. It's whether you have the patience and the ability to manage greed and fear. Um, that's what really moves the needle in investing.
0: Yeah, no, I absolutely love that story. I mean, it, the story is making me think different, right? Like it's it's this simple idea, and it's oh, that was so obvious. So I'm always just curious. When you're writing this book, you're writing an article. What are you trying to do for the reader?
1: I'm just. I I, I think it's that's an interesting way you phrase it because I'm not I'm not trying to do anything for the reader. I I, I like this idea of selfish writing, which is when I write, I'm doing it for me. I'm doing, and I don't feel guilty about my selfishness. I want to write about a topic that I think is interesting. I want to find a story that I think is interesting. And I want to write it in a way that I like and screw everyone else. But, But here, but there's actually like, so it's a selfish process, but I think it's, it actually works for a larger audience because if I like something, the odds are that other people might as well. And I think writers get into trouble where they they start out with a process of thinking, what will other people like? Like, who is my audience? What are they going to like? How can I get their attention? And I just think you you don't do your best work when you think about it in those terms. You're going to do your best work when all I think about when I'm writing is like, oh, that's interesting to me. I think that's neat. I I, I think that's that's fun. So, like, I'm going to do... So that's that's always the process that I, that I go through with writing. It's just, I, I like doing it for myself.
0: Well, certainly um, paying And writing,
1: writing as a process for anyone, even if you're not a, a blogger, if you're just a journalist, or, you know, you're, you're not a journalist, but you're, you're writing a personal journal, a private journal. The process of, of journaling, the process of writing is such a good way to clarify your thoughts okay. and to crystallize these like vague feelings that you have in your head. Once you put them into words, it can be a really clarifying process for a lot of people. So that's why I like the, you know, the, the philosophy of selfish writing, just doing it for yourself.
0: Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more with the clarifying your thinking. I I do this with some of the, the companies I'm involved with when when we're trying to figure out a tough problem. I mean, writing it down actually on paper is one of the most beneficial things we do. You were talking there just a lot about the process, right? And you bring in the most interesting ideas and stories and weave them all together. So what's that idea generation process like for you? How, how where are you plucking these ideas from? How do you come up with them?
1: It's a combination of two things. It's One, just lots of reading and lots of walking, which for me is like the thinking time, just going for a walk around my neighborhood. So lots of reading and from like the widest variety of fields that I can think of, just casting the widest net. So I don't read any investing books um, and I read very few economics books right now. I just read a lot of different topics, history and sociology and biographies and whatnot, Just, just anything that I might find vaguely interesting. And if, but you, but I'm always thinking like through the lens of investing uh, and kind of having that, that, that seat in my head. So if you're reading a book about you know, World War II or biology or the biography of Ulysses S. Grant, which I, which I just read, if you're always kind of thinking, how does this thing that I'm reading, how do these examples, these stories about human behavior, how would those apply to investing? If yeah. you're always trying to view what you're reading through that filter, it becomes pretty easy to tie these things together. Because you realize that like, investing is not the study of finance. Investing is the study of how people behave with money. Yeah. And since it's a study of behavior, there's, it applies. There's so many things from other fields that also apply to investing. So many lessons and rules and examples that have a direct tie into investing. Because they're dealing with the same forces of greed and fear and angst and anxiousness That we deal with in investing, people deal with in all kinds of other fields. So if if we can learn from them and bring the lessons into investing, a I think it's just more interesting. But you're also just casting a much wider net, viewing the world through a much wider lens, that can help you become a better investor, even if you're reading and thinking and learning about things that have nothing to do with investing. Yeah, it's almost that's 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 where the idea, that's where the process comes from. It's just lots of reading about various various fields, and then just going for walks and thinking about how they might apply to. investing
0: well i mean it almost sounds like you got the the perfect formula for letting your subconscious work here with with, with investing kind of in the background there and then the walking lets those ideas kind of spurn and then you can kind of just pull from all these different fields that's what i really enjoy so the book the psychology of money timeless lessons on wealth greed and happiness and so i'm wondering right like how does that go from just different articles ideas you've been pondering throughout the years to you know what i'm actually going to sit down write this book and put it out there because that that's always scary putting something out there and publishing
1: Yeah, no, it is. It is scary. All all the chapters, there's 19 chapters and they're all kind of stories that have nothing to do with investing, but we'll teach you something about investing. And all of them, uh, well, not all of them, but many of them came from blog posts that I had written in the past. Some of them were blogs that I wrote 10 or 12 years ago that I was able to, in the book, expand and go deeper and tell a broader story with deeper information and whatnot. Because always when you're writing a blog, you're always thinking, okay, wrap it up, wrap it up, wrap it up. Because people are so impatient. You got you to gotta make your point and then get it done. Because no one's, you, know, you can write a long form article, but it, it better be damn good or else no one's, people's attention span is so short. So if I, if I can take blog posts that I really liked that I wrote and do a deep expansion on them, um, that's great. And that's, that's, what, that's really what, what the book turned into. So it was a fun project to be able to expand and go deeper and tell more stories about ideas that I had already kind of come across in the last 13 years and expand on them.
0: Yeah, expanding on those ideas, I have to imagine this was a hard process. And I mean, you even bring up a really interesting point that just with investing, there's usually a cost, right? And we always think that that's going to be one of those financial costs, but it's usually psychological, emotional. So I'm wondering, all the years that you've put in, are there some major costs that you just had to factor in for yourself just to get so good at this?
1: I don't, I don't. Know. It sounds cliche, and I hate saying this, but like writing doesn't feel like doesn't feel like work for me. It's what it's what I it's what I like to do. Yeah. Um, and I, I, feel, I feel silly saying that because I feel like that's, the, like that's what everyone says about their career. But, but I, I, it doesn't feel, I, I really enjoy doing it. So what, what were the costs? Like, of course, there's been, I've, had, I've had as many career, I've had career anxiety like, like everyone else. It's not, been, it's not been a walk in the park, but I really, the actual process of writing, I enjoy doing. I guess if there is a cost, it's this constant nagging fear that you've run out of things to say. Hmm. And every week, so right now I write one article a week. Um, and every single week without fail, I've just gotten used to the anxiety every week. It's, oh shit, what am I going to write this week? I'm out of ideas. I got nothing. I might just need to skip this week. That <laughs> never goes away. And look, that's like, if you compare that stress with what, you know, the stress of like an ER doctor during a pandemic, it's of course, it's, it's, it's a different, it's a different level. But um, I, I think if there is one cost to writing, it's that I, I've, I go through periods where I've, I kind of get jealous of people who their job is very structured and systematic and they come into work Monday morning and there's like their tasks are laid out in front of them exactly what to do. Whereas writing is art. It's like, you, you got to make it up every week. You got to get your brain cranking and be like, okay, what's some creative idea that I can come up with next. So that's like that stress never goes away. Um, I don't think it ever will, but that's, that's a pretty low price to pay, I guess, for getting to do this.
0: Yeah, I I agree there. I'm wondering, Early on, it seems like you did such a good job with just like, we're calling broad life game selection in terms of what you wanted to do, where you took that internship and in investment bank and you're like, wow, this is not for me at all. How important do you think figuring out what truly drives you and you're interested in early on? How beneficial was that for you?
1: I would, the first thing I'd say, like, to me, it's obvious in hindsight, but my first year at The Motley Fool, um, it, wasn't, it wasn't obvious. I was not any good at writing. I had never done it before. I had a lot of career anxiety about oh since I'm not good at it they're obviously going to lay me off and you now it's 2008 I can't get a job anywhere else no one's hiring so that was like it's it's it if if I'm honest about it and I look back it wasn't obvious that this is what I wanted to do for years even I think after I'd been the Molly Fool for two or three years I didn't think this was going to be my career and I think for a while, for a long time for three years the first three years I did this. I was kind of disappointed that I had not become the investment banker that I had dreamed of, and I always kind of thought, "Well, I'll go back. I'll I'll go work for a hedge fund. I'll go work for a private equity firm. Whatever it is." It took me a while before I accepted that I'm that I'm a writer. This is what I do. I'm a writer. This is what I want to do. And if I'm honest about it, it's probably been like the last three years that I've just accepted. Yes, totally. Even when I joined the collaborative fund, which was four years ago. The idea when I joined was I was going to be, you know, spend half my time writing, half my time doing deals. I was going to be, go back to private equity. Like I always wanted to do. It's honestly been the last three years that it's been like, no, I'm a writer and that's all I want to do. It's all I ever want to do. That's it. It was been a fairly recent development that I've just accepted that this is what I want to do. And I think I've always known, you know, for I've known for a long time that this is what I want to do. I just had to detach from the past of what I thought I was going to be in the future, that I thought I was going to be a deal maker working in banking and investing. Just letting go of that dream took me a long time. But once I let it go, it, it's 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 felt good to just embrace that this is what I want to do.
0: So wait, is it, is it like an accepting or are you really happy about the, the path you're on? I, I think I'm happy
1: now, but there were definitely years of, uh, I, I think 2013, you know, not that long ago was the hardest year for my career because that was like the crossroads of like, Am I really just going to be a writer? And do I feel okay about that? Am I am I proud of that? Is that is that enough for me? Am I going to regret just doing that? Do I want to be a writer? That it was really tough for me. I actually started on the path of getting my C uh, my um, my uh, CFA um, um, CFP, excuse me. Uh, I started on that path because I was like, I, I don't want to be a writer. I gotta go do something useful. I need some initials after my name that show that I can like do something in life. So started on that path. I didn't complete it, but that was it was really that was a really tough time of like trying to figure out what I'm gonna do next.
0: Man, I I'm so happy you, you stayed on the path though. Uh, you were mentioning a little while ago about when when you write it's selfish, right? So with the book The Psychology of Money. What was going through your head when you're writing this? Because initially, I'm thinking like, what is what does Morgan want the listeners or the readers to get out of this book? But I guess what did you want to get out of that book?
1: One of the main things that I wanted when I set out writing this was so I, I, I read a lot, but I rarely finish books. Maybe like one in ten books do right I there like read to the last page? Most people are. That's the huge majority of readers. So I I really wanted to ask, like, how can I write a book that people will finish? I will feel really good about this book if people start quoting chapter 19 and I know that they actually made it that far. I'll feel really good about that. And I think the reason that you and I and other people don't finish books is because almost no topic requires 60,000 words of explanation to get your point across. Like the huge majority of books, you read chapter one and two and they make the point and you're like, oh, that's a good point. I like it. And then chapters two through 20 are just rambling kind of repetitive examples. And like, I don't, I don't need that. So I kind of structured the book as 19 chapters. Each of them can live on their own. They all have a, a, a theme that ties in together, but every one of those chapters, you could start the book on chapter 17 if you wanted to. And I did it that way because, so each chapter is about the equivalent of like three blog posts roughly in, in length. And so I made it that because, and I, I, I wanted to make 19 points that you might finish instead of making one point that just goes on and on and on and on and on. I, I've made the joke before that like the declaration of independence is 4,000 words. So if people tell me that you need 60,000 words to explain interest rates, like, no, like make your point really quickly and then move on to the next thing. Most books started with a blog post or a magazine article that did well. And then a publisher says, oh, let's turn this into a book. And they take that one little idea that they had and they just wrap it in fluff. So I wanted to avoid that as much as I possibly could. And I think there's, like there might be some chapters that could have been shorter, of course, but my, my ultimate goal for this book was to make a bunch of points and go deep on them and tell a story about them, which is the luxury that you have in a book but not. I wanted to make it as, as little rambling as possible so that people will actually finish it.
0: Yeah, I, I usually do a deep dive on the books I, I read and most of the time, like I mentioned, I don't finish them. And it, it seems like it's just a reoccurring theme as I get deeper and deeper into my notes. But yours, no, 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 each chapter, it brings something new to light, which is always fun. One of those chapters that I really did enjoy though, and I think it's just really applicable, especially right now is wealth is what you don't see. And I would love just yeah. even, even just to give a high level overview because this, this is just so important for so many people right now.
1: Well, wealth is the stuff that you didn't buy. Wealth is what you did not spend. Wealth is the cars that you didn't purchase and the homes that you didn't buy and the clothes that you didn't buy. Wealth is is income that you earned and you put in the bank and you said, I'm not gonna spend that. I'm not gonna do anything with it. That's what wealth is. It's obvious when you explain it that that's, of course, that's what wealth is. Wealth is assets that you haven't spent. But what we see in the world is not wealth. What we see in the world is spending. And therefore, it's hard to learn about wealth because you don't see it. I've used the example of like, like physical fitness. Um, most people will get motivated because they will see somebody else and they'll say, that guy or girl looks good. I would, it would be great if I could look like that too. That's where most like the motivation comes from is you look at other people who are physically fit and you say, wow, if I work that hard, I can look like, I, I can look like that person too. But wealth, you don't have that because you don't see wealth. You see people's cars, you see their homes, you don't see their brokerage accounts, you yeah. don't see their bank accounts. And there are a lot of people in the world, I learned this from living in LA during the mortgage <laughs> bubble, uh, who have really fancy cars, very fancy homes, nice clothes, and they're broke. They're stretched to the limit. You see what they spend, but you never see their wealth. And therefore, it just becomes hard to learn about wealth because it's invisible. And you, and then once you learn about people like Grace Groner, who was An orphaned, unmarried, childless secretary living in a shack, Uh, but she was wealthy. She was very, very wealthy. No one, when she was alive, she was nobody's financial role model, but she became a lot of people's financial role model when she died because that was the only time that we saw her wealth. So that's just like one of the ironies of wealth that it's, it's what you don't see. And if people want to be wealthy, which is different from being rich, like some people, if they want to be rich in terms of they, they, they want the nice car and they want the nice house, which look, I like nice houses and I like nice cars as much as anyone else, but I also want to be wealthy. I want just assets that let me control my time and give me options and let me wake up every morning. And with the ability to do whatever I want to do that day, because I have enough money in the bank that I can control my time rather than having someone else dictate what I do that day. That's what I want. So it's what I want and what I think a lot of people want is actually invisible in the world. That makes it hard to learn about.
0: Yeah, that, that, that was one of those lines there about just having that optionality to, to do what you want. That really is just a bliss. And that's the most important thing I think about uh, on a daily basis for myself. Y- you've got another line that, that I just really enjoyed in the book. And I, I'm going to butcher this slightly, but it was basically about like the finance industry always talks about like the actions you can do with the tools you have and little about the, what actually goes on in your head. And, and mm-hmm. I would love like, like when did this idea just really start formulating for you?
1: I think it's I think it's the idea that like we figured out finance the laws of finance the mathematical side that's all been solved. We know exactly how net present value calculations work. Like every, the mathematical side of finance we're experts at. We got it, we got the formulas, we got everything. But but those formulas don't actually map to it, they 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 don't explain what happens when you try to put those formulas to use. It's mm-hmm. so, like we understand net present value, we understand all that, but but that when people are actually making investments, they're not making them on a spreadsheet where they're just calculating what they should do, and then like the, the, the formula tells them exactly what should they should do, and they go do it. People make financial decisions at the dinner table where they're dealing with greed and fear and different emotions in their household, different goals, different uh, you know different dynamics that they have playing on in their household, where all these different psychological, social, you know, family uh, dynamics come into play. And then so even though like, and that's why there's such a disconnect between academic finance and actual financial results in the real world is because the formulas that we know and we're good and have provided a lot of value in, in, you know, for investors are totally different from what happens when you try to put those formulas to work and you try to make investment decisions. Those are two completely different things.
0: Yeah, I, I'm even thinking about you, right? Like the first rule of compounding is never interrupted unnecessarily. And, and you yep. switching from the Motley Fool to the Collaborative Fund. So, I mean, it was hard. Yeah, yeah. I, I can only imagine what that's like. I, I'm wondering, I mean, you've gone so deep on some of these topics. What do you think switched the most in your head? And we can even call it over the last three years uh, around finance in general, based on just writing about it and researching it.
1: I don't know if this was a sudden change, but definitely the biggest – if you were to compare it 10 years ago to today, and this was gradual over the time. This wasn't happen overnight, but my, my skepticism of, of any forecast and any financial guru, I've gone from skeptical to, to cynical on it. And I, I think it's, I think it's okay. I, I like live, being skeptical of any forecast doesn't mean that you're a fatalist. And I can just, and I just say like, ah, whatever happens, happens. No one has any idea. I think there's a way that you can manage, you can think about the future without having any forecasts without paying it. Like everyone who says Q4 GDP is going to be 6.927%. I just think that's all nonsense, but it, because but, it's a, it's a forecast that has no history of being accurate. But if you are to have an expectation rather than a forecast, if you have an expectation that we're going to have a recession every four to seven years, that's my expectation. And therefore, I don't need to know the specific forecast about what's going to happen in Q4. If my expectation is that we're going to have recessions every seven years, then when it happens, I'm prepared for it and I'm not surprised about it. So that's how I deal with, on one hand, I think virtually every economic investing forecast is nonsense, all of them. I think every guru out there Uh, whether it's self-described or someone else thinks they're a guru. I I think that's all just marketing and, you know, an overemphasis on luck of past decisions, but that doesn't, I I still think there is a way to really intelligently think about the future. And to me, it's just having a set of expectations about how the world works without specifics in terms of when or how or why they might occur.
0: What's your take with that in terms of the startup world and and people wanting forecasts early on and things like that?
1: it's just like in any seed stage startup if you have a forecast of like where revenue is going to be in four years like nonsense like tear it up it's never that's that's not what you're betting on you're not betting on the forecast you know if you are doing a leveraged buyout of a giant company then the forecasting models are really important you better make sure that the EBITDA forecasts that you have are going to cover your debt service you know that's really important but in seed stage startups that's not what you're that's not what you're betting on you're betting on human potential. Um, you know, from, from, you know, from there. So that's, but seed stage investing too is also the kind of thing where if you make 50 investments, you know that 30 of them are going to fail and one or two of them might do extremely well. That's kind of the model of how, of, of, of how it works. So it kind of forces you to have an expectation of failure as just like a baseline scenario.
0: Yeah. I, I like that approach of the expectation. It's funny. I'm, I'm involved in the startup world and anytime there's an investor wanting some methodical, just just forecast breakdown, we know that's just not going to be a good fit because he just doesn't just know just what he's talking up. about. Yeah. You, you mentioned right. kind of the, the 19 different chapters and, and you can pick them up and, and go and read whenever. What do you think is going to be a chapter that maybe might not get The most player talk about, but you just think people need to re explore and go a little deeper on.
1: That's a good. So, the shortest chapter in the book, um, I'm drawing a blank in terms of what I actually call it, but it's a chapter about man in the car syndrome, which actually might might be the, the chapter in the car, which is this idea that I came across when I was a valet during college. I was parking cars in Los Angeles, where if someone drove in in a Ferrari, the person driving the Ferrari is probably thinking, everyone thinks I'm cool because look at all the heads turning. They're all looking at me. They think I'm cool. But actually the people who are looking at the Ferrari didn't care about the driver. Everyone who was impressed with it was thinking to themselves, if I was driving that car, yeah. people would think I'm cool. People would look at me. And the irony to, of that to me was had a really big impact on just how I think about money, that people who have nice stuff thinks everyone is, is impressed with them, but people who don't have nice stuff thinks, you know, if, if I, if I was in their shoes, uh, people would be impressed with me. And it's this kind of thing. I, I, it's just like, maybe the the way, the easier way to explain is like, no one cares about what you have, but everyone thinks that if they have more stuff, people will care about them. And once you get a hold of that irony, to me, it kind of shifted financial goals of like, what do I actually want? And look, I love, I love sports cars, I love nice homes, like, et cetera, et cetera. This is not an argument to live like a monk. But to me, it's just like, what, do you, what actually makes people happy in life? What, what is actually gonna be a way that you can use your money to live a better life? And to me, when you, when you accept that irony that I just explained, it's not nicer stuff, it's controlling your time so that you can wake up every morning and do whatever the hell you want and spend the time with, with who you want, doing what you want for as long as you want. That's what I want to use money to for myself and my family to live a better life, rather than you know a, a new a, a new Lamborghini or something.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm wondering then, what mindset of yours do you get the most pushback on? But but you're pretty solid on.
1: I think so. I'm I'm pretty open that you know I dollar cost average into index funds. With my with my finances, so I get a lot of pushback from active investors on that approach. But I am not a passive zealot at all. Yeah. I'm not, you know. And there there are some some people who are. Some people will, will say if you are an if you are investing in active funds, you're you're an idiot, and you're just subsidizing the manager's fee, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not. I'm not that. It's just for my personal finances. I know that if I dollar cost average into Vanguard funds for the next 30 years and I never sell, I'm gonna meet every financial goal that I have for my family. So for me, it's like, why I don't want to do any, I don't want to do anything else. And I want to use the bandwidth that I save from not having to be an active investor to go think about my writing, what I'm gonna write about next. That's what I want to spend my time doing. So for me, it works, but I know there's a lot of other people for whom could not look themselves in the mirror in the morning if they were not trying harder with their investments. Than I do, so I, it works for other people, and of course, there are going to be smart investors who can outperform over time. It's going to be hard; it should be hard. You shouldn't have more than ten percent of managers who try to beat the market actually do it. That's how it should be. But for me, um, the simplest approach, where I can think about my finances in the simplest terms possible, um, you know, my entire net worth is a house, a checking account, and some Vanguard funds, and that, that's it. And I love that it's that simple. I, I love that I can just wrap my head around it in the simplest way possible.
0: Yeah. Morgan, I think you're going to hate this question, but I'm just wondering, I mean, you're, you're able to look back now. Why do you think you've been successful?
1: I, well, I, I, you know, first it's, 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 a, it's subjective because I, and other people might, might not think I am.
0: I mean, I, we, know, we can just take I, your, I like your, your made... book, the, 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 pre, the pre-selling that's been going on and, and the interest, <laughs> believe me, I, I will say you've done pretty well for yourself in your career.
1: Well, thanks. I think if there's, any, if there's anything that, I, that I'm, I'm proud of, let's say, it's that I feel like I, I can do a good job of explaining complicated things in simple ways. Yeah. I think if there's one skill that I'm like, no, like put modesty aside, that's what I'm proud of. It's, it's that. That's what that's what, I feel, what I feel good about. Um, I would say like, how was I able to do that? It's because I've been able to spend every single day of my career for 13 years thinking about how to do that. So if you make that the one thing that you do in your career, I'm not good at anything else but that, because that's all I've ever tried to do. Um, so And I think there's a lot of yearning for that, because a lot of people who write about finance or any other topic, they will try to look smart by writing things more complicated than they need to be, with words that are bigger than they need to be, with too much data, just to show you, look how smart I am. Look how many charts I have. Look how many big words I'm using. And I think if you can not only break away from that, but do the polar opposite of that, I mean, like, I want to prove my intelligence through simplicity. And that's not intuitive. It seems like the opposite thing to do. Like, I, I want to explain how the economy works through the, in a way that a 10-year-old can understand. That's hard to do. But I think if you can do it, people there's, there's, there's demand for that. People like that.
0: Yeah, that's so hard to do. It's even the mindset that you're going to do that. So I'm even wondering, like 13 years ago, early in your career, why were you looking through that lens? I,
1: I, I don't think I was. Oh. <laughs> I, I don't, if, I, if I go back and read stuff I wrote 13 years, it was more complicated than it needed to be, more longer than it needed to be, more wordy than it needed to be. So it, I think what pushed me to that, I don't think it was like I realized that was a good thing to do. It's that readers are so impatient that if you write something that is confusing or complicated, they're gone, they're out of there. And when you start getting the metrics of like what article did well and what didn't, it's just kind of like this evolutionary force of like the simple stuff. Yeah. There's been so many times where I write an article where I'm like, this is so basic. I can't believe I'm even <laughs> writing. I'm writing. This is so dope. And those articles do so well. And there's others then where I'm like, Oh, I found this really interesting piece of data and it's kind of complicated. What not? But I think it's really, and like, no one cares. No <laughs> one reads it because they're just, it's complicated. So it's to me it was just like the evolution of what does well and what doesn't that pushed me towards the simple stuff is what does well, so let's do more of that,
0: yeah no, I'm really cognizant of the time here. I know we got to go pretty quick here, but uh, just a few more things I'd love to hit on with you and you're just such a prolific thinker. If you're gonna write about something completely outside of investing a, a new book what what topic or subject do you think you'd write in?
1: well, I, I actually have a uh, book number two kind of like I haven't started writing it, but I have it kind of outlined and I'll give you the very brief summary. It's on uh What does not change in the world? What are the enduring characteristics of history, things that never change, that are just fundamental parts of how people think about the world that we know since they've been around forever, they're going to be part of our future. And since they're going to be part of our future, we can latch onto them as like certainties that these couple of forces are going to be part of our future. Um, that's, That's what book number two is going to be
0: about. What's it titled? Cockroaches and Sex?
1: I don't have a title, but let's go with that for now.
0: It might work. No, no. no. One more thing. I I know you've studied so many people. If you were going to write a biography, who would you write it on?
1: Good question. Um, I mean, it might be cliche too, but I would probably say Charlie Munger just because I think, I mean, that's that's such a boring answer. Like 90% of people in my field would give that answer, but I, I, I still think he's the most interesting man of our time. Not just because of his, his success, but just how he thinks about the world and his ability to articulate how he thinks. I, I, I don't think there's anyone about him. I don't think there's anyone like him. Forget living, but in, our, in the last hundred years, I think he's one of the, the most interesting men of the last hundred years. So I, he's something you know, obviously someone who I admire, and I wish there was more written about his life.
0: Is, is there someone somewhat similar to him who would, is, we can just call it an undiscovered thinker who, who might be interesting to research uh, a little more
1: yeah. on? Um, I think maybe the closest, he's not anywhere near undiscovered, but I think Naval is probably someone who is in the same bucket. Very different. And Naval writes a lot, tweets a lot, whatnot. But I think the the common denominator there is the ability to explain complicated things through really simple, really clear cut ways where you can explain something in one sentence and you're like, yes, that's it. That's what I've had this vague idea that other people have written books about, and you just explained it in a tweet. That's the common denominator between Munger and Naval that that I really like.
0: Okay. So we're going to say no Munger, no Naval. If you could sit down with anyone dead or alive for an evening, just dinner interview, hanging out, enjoying their presence, who would it be?
1: I think uh, I think it would be Franklin Roosevelt because he was front and center during what I think is the most interesting period in modern history, which was the combination Great Depression, World War II. Hmm. No one in the world had a better insight into those two things than he did um, because he was the leader of both. You had, you know, Churchill and whatnot, who was, you know, leader during the war, but not not during the depression, to have both of those things and be the leader of both of those things, which to me is the most interesting part of human history, because it was some of the most devastating parts of history. It was when people dealt with the most stress and uncertainty of any point in modern history. Dealing with that and uh, to, to me would, would, would be just incredibly fascinating.
0: Yeah, that really would be. Okay, so we're gonna pick up the psychology of money. We're gonna be done with that. Three books one biography, one on psychology, and then we'll just give a, a wild card. What's gonna be okay. on your bookshelf?
1: Uh, I just finished, um, and I, I actually did finish it, the biography of, of Ulysses S. Grant by Ron Chernow, which was so fascinating. I consider myself someone who knows, who likes U.S. history, but I know so little about the Civil War. Like to me, like a lot of people, this is unfortunate, but my, but history to me like starts at like 1920. It's so unfortunate, but that's how it is. So there was so much that I learned about the Civil War that I thought was fascinating. And Grant too, I really knew nothing about him. And he was a really fascinating guy. Um, so that I, I thought was great. It's a very long book. Uh, it's, you know, I don't know, more than a thousand pages, but it's great. Uh, psychology book. Uh, uh, what, 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 would be, what would be a good one? I've always loved Dan Gardner's book, The Science of Fear. It's not necessarily a psychology book, but it kind of fits in that realm. That was a book that really changed how I thought about the world when I read it. I first read it like 10 years ago. It's really well written. And there's a lot of things in there that when I read them, it was like, ah, oh, yes, of course that's true, but I never thought about that. And one wild card. Um, what's what's interesting? I, I'm gonna I'm gonna open up my Kindle for you right now, so I can scan the last you know twenty books that I've yeah. that I've that I've read. Let me why scan you're scanning that? How, how many
0: are in your Kindle?
1: It's hard to say. I, I I don't know. I don't know if there's a way to count. I'm gonna guess two hundred because I, I go through periods when I, I want to read physical books and I want to yeah. read Kindle. So I, I it's not okay. So a good book that I see on Kindle. There's a book called Bubble in the Sun that uh, I think it was published this year. It's going oh, around. This is about It's about Florida. the Florida yeah. land boom during the 1920s that led to the Great Depression. I thought it was so fascinating and so interesting. It's a great book.
0: Yeah, I'm going to have to pick that one up being in South Florida here uh, right around where, where Edison, Ford, and Firestone were all doing their work uh, in the winter's. Yep. So Morgan, uh, really, uh, I'm so just excited, happy for you with this, uh, just because I've just been such a fan of your work, The Psychology of Money, Timeless Lessons on Wealth, Greed and Happiness. Believe me, we, we have everything linked up in the show notes, but anywhere else you want the listeners just staying connected with you or checking out and to find out more about the book?
1: Most of where I live online is Twitter. My, yeah. my handle is Morgan Housel, first and last name. That's where I spend too much of my time. Twitter is my drug of choice in life. So if it's, if it's during the waking hours, I'll probably be there.
0: Awesome. Well, Morgan Housel, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Thanks so much for having me. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.